Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Hey. Hey, how's it going? Oh, this, good, is, yeah. um, uh, this is the week I was supposed to have been in the UK. Oh, okay. I, I, I forgot about it. I actually, I was actually only thinking about this a, a couple of hours ago. And that you're going to be coming over to, to Europe soon. So what, what happened with that? Uh, so we are the, we just got an email saying the flights were canceled. And do we want to reschedule a refund? We just took the refund option. Yeah, better off. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people can't get it together. But <laughs> um, that's all right. We're going to Colorado next week. Um, so it'll still be fun. Nice. Yeah, I know the UK being super strict on who they let in and out of the country at the moment. So... Maybe that has something to do with it. I, I'm sure. I'm sure it's that. And also there's a direct flight from Austin to London that in the best of times goes twice a week. So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm guessing they just don't have the people for it now too. Um, it's expensive to fly, you know, to, to actually get the plane off the ground. So um, anyways, they didn't give a reason, but, but we just got a refund. So, <laughs> so we're here. I get to do the podcast now instead of missing a week, which is great. Uh, good silver lining. And um uh, yeah, we're, we'll we'll try again in the in the spring if we can uh, they can figure this thing out the virus out. Cool. Uh, so we'll get cracking. Um, so this week, by by pure fate alone, ended up being a um, a women in film, a women in film week. Uh, we're going to be talking about three different films, all of which um, follow a female protagonist. Um, they're not made by female filmmakers I understand actually now that calling it a women in film week might be a little bit confusing um but yeah it basically three films three sort of strong female protagonists uh sort of dealing with different things in life in different ways uh we're going to kick it off with a 1952 film by Fritz Lang uh called Clash by Night just to give you a quick intro as to what this is about and uh, the IMDb um page for this reads may doyle comes back to her home down a cynical woman her brother joe fears that his love fish canary working pet worker peggy may wind up like may may marries jerry and has a baby she is happy but restless drawn to jerry's friend earl whoever wrote that did a really crappy job that's <laughs> a pretty bad description. well it's not it's a, it's a pretty good description of the film which is really poorly worded and um, basically barbara stanwick does Barbara Stanwyck things, <laughs> comes back to a sleepy small town and marries this nice, 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 nice fella, nice sort of small town, peachy keen guy, but uh, ends up being drawn to his sort of bad boy asshole friend. Um, what, what do we think of Clash by Night? I, I'm curious to know Zach's reaction more so because this was, this was unfortunately his first Fritz Lang film. Um, which is not a not maybe not the best way to start, but anyone want to jump in in particular with their thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, I can just go ahead and jump in. Um, I I kind of felt, and we'll get to this with Pandora's box too. That I, I did think the second half of the film was a little bit more interesting when kind of the melodrama because it, it's a pretty melodramatic film. I mean, that's kind of the point of it, and it's you know it's. In that sense, once that kind of came about, it became a little bit more interesting, a little bit more, uh, a little bit better to think about. The first half is just kind of, eh, kind of feels a little meandering. Um, 
I thought the performances were really good, though. I, I um, and uh, the only other thing I think of is uh, Joe's an asshole. I guess that's my thoughts. <laughs> uh, so, um, they shoot pictures has it as twenty one oh four, which to me feels too high, too high way too high. <laughs> yeah, because you know if you think about the the math behind that, that means there's a lot of people that put it either in a top ten list or maybe a top one hundred list, which blows my mind. Um, I'm guessing people that like Fritz Long, maybe there's a particular reason they like Fritz Long, and like this was a good example of that. Um, I, I just, you know, if I if I think about something like M, for example, I mean, just to take the most obvious kind of example, but like and contrasted to this, it just feels like two different directors, like two different. Like, I don't even know. There's just nothing. Like M is the most imaginative storytelling, like right, creative set design like the great shadow play like and this was just kind of like a studio film like maybe at the time kind of oscar Beatty from the performances um but felt very bland i i you know i'm gonna do my best to talk about the themes in this because the themes were more interesting to me than the the actual movie itself but um yeah what about you adam yeah, I definitely feel the same. Um, like Fritz Lang, as you guys know, and the listeners probably know by now, is one of my favorite directors. I love a lot of his work, both his German work and then a lot of his film noirs. This one, it just, yeah, like it, it was it was very bland. Some moments were noirish, and then other moments, as Zach said, very melodramatic, very Douglas Sirkian, um, in a way, but it never really commits to either like it probably could have been a really good melodrama or a really good noir mm -hmm. and it just it tried to be both and it just failed um and comparing it to a studio film is is interesting as well because it doesn't there is no langian aspects really in this film like fritz lang has a lot of sort of tropes uh, and none of which are really present in this film um like, honestly, if his name wasn't on the credits, I wouldn't have even known he directed it. So, exactly. yeah, like I was I was kind of let down in a way. I, when I say let down, <laughs> I was saying to Zach before we started recording that I, I honestly didn't even know this film existed. Even when I was compiling my, you know, my list to do my Fritz Lang run through, I like completely overlooked this film. Um, and I, I see why there's so many better Fritz Long films out there. And even there's so many better Fritz Long films that have the same themes as this film out there. So yeah, I, I was, I was, I was very disappointed, unfortunately. What's the, Oh man, you know, this is not going to be very interesting. If we can't get this answer quickly, we can just move on. There is a criterion movie that where there's a guy who's kind of like bullied and picked on. And then um, it's in a small town, America. Are you? I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, oh shit! I only watched it recently. Like, yeah. If I look at my diary. I'll find it. I think I even might have been reminded of it from something you wrote. It, anyways, it, it's a, it was a, the reason I'm bringing it up. If we can, if we can do a recall, the reason I, I'm bringing it up is because it was a better example of a story that, on the surface, I think was pretty thin. But the way that they kind of wrote it, it was it was an interesting melodrama. It wasn't like like the issue I had with this, with, you know, with um, Clash by Night was it felt like in, in a weird way, it felt like they were trying to 
impart like a particular morality on us and like, or at least assume that the audience all shared a similar morality. And a lot of it was, you know, that kind of old classic, like Americana type of morality. Mm. And so a lot of the drama, in order to get behind the drama, you have to subscribe to that same morality. Otherwise it doesn't land. It's more of like just the academic exercise, right? You're like, okay, I get it. Like, that's not like that guy doesn't share the same values as that guy. Like, okay, fine. But it doesn't really have the same emotional impact. Like, I don't think the themes were universal, especially in 2021. I, I would say the one thing that's interesting is not necessarily the themes, but the, I guess that clash, you know, just use the title here a little bit, but like, you know, uh, we get into like, um, I can't remember the characters. Is her name May? Yeah. May is, yeah. Uh, you know, he, yeah. he, for her to not want to be a traditional housewife, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, especially then that's, that's completely acceptable. I think the morality comes with the fact that, she drags someone down with her because she couldn't commit to that decision. Um, and I, I guess that's a little bit more, it's hard to say it's universal because in that case, neither one of them are wrong, but she, I guess you could say is slightly more in the wrong because she kind of knew this about herself and did something against her own judgment anyway, which affected other people. But I mean, if we take them in a vacuum, neither are wrong. And that's kind of the interesting part. Okay. So Fantastic point. And can I just play devil's advocate on that? Absolutely. Like, this is exactly my, because I, I was thinking the same thing, but then it ends with them getting back together, right? So it's like they have this kind of Hollywood ending bolted on. Do they get back together at the end? I, I, did, I didn't quite get that. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess it did. I guess to me, it seemed like he was just accepting that it was, I, I, and maybe I missed something. If I did, feel free to call me out on it. But it seemed to me that he was just accepting that, you know, he he's not going to be the selfish person that just keeps her away from her child and knowing he's not going to, like, put the child in this danger on a boat just because he's petty about it. But yeah. it was, you know, I could have misunderstood what they were going for. No, it's a fair point. I mean, maybe I did. Maybe I missed it. It just felt like they had that kind of, like, loving glance right at the end there. That... If, yeah, to me, if obviously it's the film is not very explicit as to whether or not they got back together because if if it was then it would be obvious to all of us and they would have shown it but um yeah it's it's sort of maybe implicitly implied that maybe they can be amicable at the very least if not get back together you know but um, yeah i guess it does try to leave on a hopeful note like ah maybe later on if they're if they're not now maybe it can work later instead of the idea that maybe two incompatible people just don't need to be together, but it doesn't mean they can't be civil. hundred percent. Yeah. Especially yeah. when there's like a child involved, you know? Interesting. So it's more of like a chasing Amy ending. Yes. <laughs> Who would have known Kevin afraid. Smith remake Clash by Night? This is Kevin Smith's take on Clash by Night. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, Chris, I think the film you were thinking of is Moonrise. Yes. Yes. Frank yes. That's it. That's the one. That's a great film. That's really good. If you want to, if you want a film that 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 does sort of tackle both melodrama and film noir, uh, Moonrise by Frank Borzage does a great job of of straddling that line. Thank you. I was doing a search for Douglas Sirk for some reason. I thought it was his, but Borzage makes way more sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, look. I suppose they're all they're, they're kind of from the same sort of school of melodrama, really, aren't they? Like, um, yeah, Bor- Borzage or Bor- I don't know how to pronounce his surname. Bor- Borzage, whatever. Um, yeah, him and Cirque are, are kind of similar in a way. And, and well, they came from a similar era, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, speaking of women in film, 
I feel like we have to at least mention the Marilyn Monroe in this. Mm. Um, so I, I was digging around a little bit just on this. Did you see, did you know that like th- during production of this movie is when her first big photo shoot dropped? Oh, really? Is that why it was like a smaller role then, I assume? I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but they, they, you know, they were already well into production before it did, but this is when her Playboy ad uh, shoot dropped. And apparently that, if you can imagine the flood of uh, um, journalists that, that came to the set, <laughs> because this was a big deal, right? Right around in that, in that same kind of few weeks right after it dropped. So apparently it caused a huge stir in the production and like a huge disruption. I said I pissed Fritz off. Yeah, right? Like he's got a control over like every aspect of like every film he's made. And then this Marilyn Monroe certainly was bigger than him. I mean, it's like three, it's like she's in three scenes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know that we would have spectacles like that nowadays. Like, what would even be similar? I can't imagine something that would be as, like, as you would like have a, to have like a sports star playing in a movie. Like, that'd be the only thing I could think of that would be similar. And even that's become kind of normal. Like a like the equivalent today would be a sex tape, maybe. Yeah, if we're gonna go that direction, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that could, yeah, like you know, Paris Hilton, you know, like Ronaldo, Ronaldo. Yeah. Sex- <laughs> Um, just just in terms of something that would cause a similar stir. Well, Marilyn Monroe was causing stirs anyway. I don't know if you ever read about the production of Some Like It Hot. Um, apparently, that was an absolute train wreck because of Monroe. Um, apparently, like Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis used to like take bets on how many times it would they would she would need to do a take because <laughs> she just she just kept messing everything up. Like, I, wow. That's crazy, right? I mean, well, I won't get into it. It's just a different era. You know, it's interesting looking at the impact she had back then on like culture, just in general, right? She was yeah. like, larger than so much uh, of, of in, in culture and seeing her now, like it doesn't quite make sense, but I guess it's different, like being not, not being in it, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if we have, I, I, anyways, I've thought about this with Michael Jordan and Michael, excuse me, Michael, uh, Jackson as well as like the Beatles as like some of these acts I don't know if we're ever going to have something that kind of duplicates that type of stardom right well see the problem is that the people who are now in those kind of levels of stardom are not actually very talented you know it's like a Kim Kardashian yeah that's a great interesting point so every time she posts a picture of her in, in front of a mirror it gets like 100 million views right Exactly. So, like, if you can imagine, like, what it would have been like to make a film back then with Marilyn Monroe, it's probably like if you wanted to try and make a film and have Kim Kardashian in it. Imagine the paparazzi would be all over the set trying to sort of get pictures of Kim Kardashian's first acting role, for example. That's the sort of best sort of modern twist I can maybe put on this, except for the fact that obviously Marilyn Monroe is obviously an actress and Kim Kardashian is a glorified porn star. But, um, <laughs> And, you know, and, I think it thing. might be, you know, going back to like the uh, way like paparazzi and stuff, you know, with Monroe, there was like this sense of positivity with her role. Like, you know, if you had Kim Kardashian, the whole thing would be like, what is the most, what kind of story can we get here? Mm. And obviously more negative ones are going to sell. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's a whole thing too. You know, you mentioned the Beatles, you know, that, 
I think it's a lot of this constant access we have to information that, you know, like when the Beatles came over from the UK, it was a big deal because, you know, the British invasion, it led to uh, the Stones, it led to um, Sex Pistols and all that, you know, being a big part of that uh, music in, uh, industry. And I'm not even sure if something like that's possible anymore, because if there's, I mean, you know, you look at uh, K-pop, you know, there's no invasion of that. People are just into it because you have access to everything it's not learning new information because it's always there yeah it's not like bands had to come over and try and make it in america like they used to do sort of before the internet blew up just make it on (laughs) exactly you can listen to anything anywhere in the world you can you can listen to some indie artist in the philippines who has 10 monthly listeners easily just by searching them you know so it just doesn't really exist. Well, everything now, because of the internet, everything has become so much closer. But it, it kind of says a lot about Clash by Night how off the rails this conversation <laughs> has gone. <laughs> well, no, um, I'm going to tie it in right now. So what's what's one and a half okay. million dollars in in today's money? Um, let's see. Anyways, I, I don't. I, I can see if I can do this quickly. But the, it did transfer to the box office. So you know, the movie made one and a half million. Um, in the box office back in 1952, which is probably, I, I guess I have to look it up really quick, 15 million-ish, something like that nowadays. It, it, was, it was made on a pretty tight budget and it had a long, a long you know, rental and, and kind of video um, um, life as well after theatrical. So it was a financial success. Um, so it worked, in, you know, in that sense, it worked. Um, it's just... I, you know, boring. It's, it's it's an example of a film that's kind of boring, right? And just kind of like it 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 survived on on star power, um, very thin. Everything else, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I'm gonna make sure to say her name. Barbara Stanwyck. That's how you say her last name, right? Stanwyck. I, I think yeah. it's Stanwyck. Stanwyck. Okay, Stanwyck. She had this was kind of I'm not gonna say the dip in her career, but this was after she got nominated. Like her last nomination was like what four years before that. So. It's kind of a part of her career too, where she's not getting these award nominations anymore right towards the end. Um, I don't know how long she acted, but I don't think she got the recognition at this point like she was before. Yeah. No, and like she, wasn't, she wasn't even, I suppose she was what, about 40, I want to say about 44, 45 when she made this, if my maths is right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like, so, she's about, yeah, that's right. That's right, right around 45. So, you know, even I suppose even nowadays it's kind of the same, but especially back in the old Hollywood days, like your career is pretty much over once you get past 35. Um, and I guess it says a lot so to have someone like Monroe there because it almost, I'm not going to say it's like a willing passing of the torch, but it's kind of like an embodiment of that, that kind of mentality towards uh, actresses, especially, but actors and actresses of that time that, you know, yeah, she's, she was successful. She did her thing, but now Monroe's coming in, and I think she was like 20, 22 at that time. So, yeah, it could be seen as a passing of the torch kind of a thing. I wouldn't say it would be a willing one, but it's it's there. No, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think Barbara would be that kind of girl. So, someone brought up in the uh, in the chat when we were having a, in our in our weekly discussion around this about how you know we it's almost like it was a meta role for her. Because we, it's all, it's like in her career, we got to see her as this fiery young starlet who was, 
like winning hearts and minds, winning awards, right? And then as she was kind of falling out of favor with the public a little bit, she makes this movie, which is her like coming home and having a moment of reflection on things that, you know, they never really described like what she was doing exactly back East. Um, so there's an opportunity, if you want to look at it through that lens, that this is kind of a meta role for her, which is kind of a cool take, I thought. Uh, they did they, they did kind of clarify for maybe I'm completely misremembering this, but wasn't it she was she was like the mistress of a politician mm-hmm. and they when alluded he died, to it a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like he died and he left her nothing, so she was kind of chased out of town by the by the widow then. So, you know, not up to good girl things. <laughs> um, but you know. It's, yeah, and it's, I, it's... you know, I, I guess it might be worth talking about too, because I, I mean, this film kind of relies on this—the relationship between her and uh, Jerry. If it, you know, obviously we know it doesn't work, but you know, at some point they also have to have some chemistry to make it believable that they would even attempt to get married. And I guess it's the idea of what Jerry really sees in May. Besides, you know, he. He, he obviously feels a lot of affection towards her. That's kind of the problem is it's not as mutual as they need it to be. Mm-hmm. But, and, it, and it's kind of interesting because he's so, um, trying to think of the word, so pa- he's a very passive individual. Like he's, you know, he kind of just lets things go. He goes with the flow. He just sees, tries to see the good in everyone. And she's a lot more cynical. She's very cynical compared to him mm-hmm. about how things are. And it's kind of interesting and it could just be that they thought it'd be interesting to just put these two people so far apart, but in a, you know, watching it, it does, you can almost see why it almost works. Like when you're watching it, it doesn't feel like they're so far apart. It can, it's just unwillingness to almost. Yeah. The dynamic is almost like, you know, almost like a sort of city mouse country mouse kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. he's lived in the small fishing town He's just he's just happy, sort of content in that life, and you know she's had the taste of the, the big city life with the, you know, with the lavish lifestyle. So like her cynicism towards it all is kind of understandable. Like if that was the lifestyle she had grown accustomed to, and suddenly she's sort of back, the you know in the place where she felt she had escaped from and grown out of, then like I can understand that. None of this obviously excuses the way she treats. Um, the way she treats Jerry um, in the film, you know, she basically digs her claws in, sees an easy sort of, you know, just an, an easy way for her to get some kind of stability in this town and sort of maybe takes advantage of his sort of niceness and naivety uh, and ends up obviously, you know, doing the dirty on him. But um, I can kind of understand why she would be sort of very cynical about everything you know, because of her experiences versus Jerry, who's very just sort of contented, probably because just doesn't, you know, doesn't know any better than, you know, what he's experienced in the small town. Right. Well, I think we've probably reached about the max we can talk about this movie, but I have one other quick point. And if, if y'all are okay with this, I think just to, to kind of counter what you said, I, I think, you know, the way that I read her character, she was giving it an honest effort. Like, I don't think she was malicious against Jerry when she got into the relationship with him, right? Like, I think there was a part of her that wanted that. Just like, you know, there's a part of me that wants to go on a diet and exercise, right? And But, but here right. I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think I think she was hoped that, you know, you fake it until you make it sort of thing. Like, as yeah. long as I, if I keep playing the housewife, I will be content as the housewife. Yeah, I have this kid. I will be content as the mother. And I think, and you know, that was kind of the interesting part is 
she did kind of gain that mother element. Like she did, you know, as cynical as she was, she did care about her kid. She, uh, she did, she never wanted to leave that. And that was kind of the big part between her and Joe and Joe was that she wouldn't leave without. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. She did develop as a character. I suppose we can't say she didn't. Um, just one quick thing I'll bring up then just before we, um, we wrap up on this film. If like if someone's like Zach out there and this you've never seen a Fritz Long film or this is your only Fritz Long film, if you want to watch a Fritz Long film about that deals with adultery, watch Scarlet Street, The Woman in the Window, and Human Desire because all three are much 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 better than this film, and two of the three star Joan Bennett who is just awesome as a femme fatale so does any any other long virgins out there um definitely definitely consider watching any of those three but in, in particular scarlet street scarlet street is a film noir classic it's dark it's brooding it has edward g robinson who's awesome um yeah any any other fritz long than this but specifically scarlet street all right, and for our next film, we're going to be watching uh, Pandora's Box. Um, insert German pronunciation here, if Adam would like to. Um, this is by G.W. Pabst. Uh, the film is about the rise and inevitable fall of an amoral but naive young woman who's in oh incessant. Oh, that's there we go. That's how that word's spelled. Incessant eroticism inspires lust and violence in those around her. I almost did really good there until that one word <laughs> tripped me up. I'm kind of curious about the German pronunciation because I didn't even look it up. Uh, I can give it a college try here. Um, yeah, it's not. It's die not Busche der Pandora. It's yeah, probably no. completely butchered, and I don't even care. Second half, second half, the easy half was fine. It's die Buchse. Die Buchse. Die Buchse. Yeah, you have the umlaut over the U, so it drags out the U ah, sound. Okay. It's kind of like an accent if you've ever done like French or anything like that. It's kind of like an accent. It drags out the sound. Gotcha. Die okay. Buchse der Pandora. Very good. Um, yeah, Pandora's Box. Um, I, I love this film. Um, I, I start, it started off not too, not too good for me. Um, I don't know if you guys are in the same boat. It kind of starts... It's weird. Is it? It starts slow, but it also starts like right in the middle of something. So at the same time, you're trying to play catch up to who these characters are, but then also not a lot is really happening at the same time. So it, it has a really abrasive sort of starting sort of 15, 20 minutes or so. But once I got into the flow of who these characters were and you know what was sort of going on in the world around them, I was straight in. Um, I've seen two other Pabst films before this, uh, Camarade Shaft and West Front 1917. Um, and he's, he's a super, uh, I'm going to in, instill the wrath of Zach by saying he's an underrated director. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think he is like not a lot, not enough people talk about him um, when we're talking about sort of classic directors and Pandora's box is a really good example of, of how good he is for me with the pacing it i think what really because i I'm, I'm with you the second half i think is just much stronger really i just felt like the story they tell in like the first four or five acts because this is split across is it eight acts i think it's eight 
Yeah, I think it was eight. Yeah. yeah. The, the story for the first five is something I just kind of sat there and was like, you can kind of tell this in 15 minutes. <laughs> and we're like, because, <laughs> you know, the, really the inciting incident is, since this is only halfway, I don't feel like this is too much of a spoiler here, is when she kills her new husband in self defense. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the inciting incident. So, I mean, the first, really, it's about like, you can take, like, I'll take the second act because I do remember that one. You don't really learn a lot in the second act, just that people are just kind of like, eh, should you marry this person? And that's kind of all you really get out of that. But it, it goes on for like 15 or 12 or 15 minutes, I would say. And that was really where I was, it kind of like, I needed, I, once, once the incident happens after their marriage, I'm really into it. It just takes me a little while because I feel like it kind of drags itself out for a while. Yeah, like I think it's pretty much it is definitely even though it's split into acts rather than parts, um, it is a film of two halves. And I think the first half is just more so about establishing um Lulu as a character, the things that she does, the things that are within her her power, if we want to call them, just because she does almost have this near supernatural ability of just bending everyone to her will. Um so the first half is, I think, is very much a, a case of setting up who Lulu is, the things she is capable of doing, the things she has done, the things she can do. And then the second half is more a reaction of the things she has done and the consequences associated with that. Yeah, so it's, they shoot pictures has this at 289. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Yeah, and make the call too high, too low. Who wants to make that call? I think it sounds about right to me personally, but I don't mind it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not insulted by it. I, I've thought about this film a lot after I saw it. Like, I there, there's two main threads I, I kind of want to like that I think about when I think about this film. One is how much I hate sort of like the the code that came in. I know this was a German film, but the idea that this type of art was made in 1929 with this much of a complex morality. We were just talking about morality with Clash by Night. I think this is an incredibly complicated and nuanced morality in the movie. Uh, when you look at this woman as the, as the hero, like as the protagonist anyways, like what a deep, like kind of rich character study. Uh, and then I also think about the representation of women in movies in general and like, you know, maybe Charlize Theron in Monster has a similar type of discussion where you can at least you sympathize for somebody who's making bad decisions because you kind of see what's going on in her life around her. But like this type of woman doesn't get a lot of representation in this in this way. And it's a shame because it's like at least in the, in the way that Paps did it here. It's fascinating, right? Like she's, you, you mentioned power, like she's clinging on the power where she can have it. And she's using what she can to survive in a pretty tough world, like 1929, nobody, you know, it was a pretty, it was kind of a tougher world, different world. But like, and the people around her are, are making it really difficult for her to kind of get any footing in, in any kind of uh, um, foundation, right? And, and stability in her life. So she's constantly in survival mode. And yeah, like she does some bad things, like she does some nasty things and she's kind of like almost like a devil character at times. Um, 
but like it's not without sympathy right that that, that just this this nuance is just i loved it like it's beautiful yeah i was it's interesting because there, there is no really black and white answer as to whether lulu is a good character or whether she's a bad character yeah she certainly does bad things but at the same time the bad things she's doing are a lot of it are sort of in the context of the time that we're speaking of this idea of you know sort of going around and meeting other guys and things like that you know a lot of the things that that she does in this film that are supposedly bad are not really all that bad in the sort of in a modern context and obviously you know a lot of the time when you have to sort of read a film in the context of its era it's it's hard to to sort of enjoy a lot of older films if you can't sort of look past that but she's incredibly complex character the the film is really really anchored by her and and you know paps did a fantastic job of directing her and especially the fact that she was american he was german so obviously there would have been a language barrier there as well so the fact that they were able to sort of work together to to get this almost like ethereal performance she's almost like a force of nature um so yeah, she she's she's definitely the star of this film. Like, this is not a film that you know we're probably not going to talk about visuals or cinematography a whole ton or anything like that. This is as close to a pure character study as you can really get in cinema. Yeah, yeah, she's a superhero, and and we I don't not enough people or or maybe anybody focused on this on the discussion. So I want to kind of ask you all about it here. One of the characters that I think about the most as I kind of look back on the movie are those two guys that followed her around and were sort of like the devils over her shoulder, the Siglock and Quest? The one, that whole thing, and I'd like to hear what exactly their part is, because they were kind of the ones that, I guess you could say, confused me a little bit, because she calls one of them her father at one point, right? But yeah, obviously that's not what's this... going on there. It's just, it's so confusing. Yeah, um... I think it's more so like a father figure. I, I was kind of confused by it as well. So I read the Wikipedia entry and like they describe him as like a previous sort of guy that she had sort of got her her sort of fingers in. Or, that sounds way back. Yikes. You know what I mean? You know, she's like a previous guy that she had sort of wrapped up oh. in her schemes. She, she goes is your first customer right that's what that's what the, that's how the movie starts. that's why the father line confused me i was like what oh sorry maybe i'm mixing it up then with the other car no yeah yeah no, she she goes that's why i was confused yeah no yeah no i am thinking of the right guy yeah she goes sort of as the guy that shows up at the very start and this is what i was saying earlier the film just kind of just throws you in yeah. in the middle of these people's lives and um, he just shows up and apparently according to wikipedia um, her first patron. Mm-hmm. So I, obviously I would assume, uh, unless Pops wanted to be very, very bold, that um, they are not really father and daughter, but um, she essentially looks at him as like a, almost like a father figure, perhaps, maybe. But I don't know. That that sounds weird as well, just the way that she, she treats him. But maybe, maybe I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's a complex, it's a complex relationship, obviously. Is it possible it's like sugar daddy? Like that's possibly. I don't know if that was a phrase that would have been used in that era. 
but um, but daddy was used like that right in a lot of the 20 like in a lot of the the kind of like 20s cultures like hey daddy come on like let's go party that kind of thing right like really i i don't know i i honestly can't say i I genuinely don't know the answer now adam you you can't question chris if we're going to count who watches you know who collects the most porn in this group it's Chris. (laughs) that's true (laughs) well yeah um (laughs) i'll I'll, I'll wear that mantle i guess (laughs) that's funny um no but like i think that's a slang term from the 20s i think i've heard that before like you know if you're if you're talking to like uh like Like i've heard it in a jazz context like yeah a daddy-o but like not the connotation that maybe it would have nowadays i don't know if it was if they said it in that context but you know i know the old sort of jazz sort of you know hey daddy-o that kind of thing but um, I, I digress. <laughs> it's it's still an interesting relationship. I, I was more so interested by her relationship with Alva because, you know, she's apparently very good friends with this dude while trying to sort of seduce his dad. Like, that's that's just weird. And he just, he like just seemingly does not, does not have a problem with this. He's like super chill with the whole idea of his friend seducing his dad. He, yeah, he, and you know, it's, it's hard weird. because you don't know the context of how his dad and her really got into this. I mean, I, I assume he just literally fell in love with his hooker. And I mean, I'm like, <laughs> you're told you're not supposed to be bad. <laughs> but I'm like, I guess that's to go with. <laughs> but is she even a hooker, though? She strikes me more as a gold digger. I mean, they call her a call girl at one time, don't they? Uh, perhaps. It, it could be it could be derogatory. It could be meant to kind of insult her, though. Like, I think she's yeah. more like an escort or something, if anything, right? Or like she's using this kind of to get in into relationships and like for protection, I think, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Like I, I honestly, I didn't even look at her. I just looked at her like a like a party girl who was a gold digger, basically sort of clutched onto these rich guys to try and get money and protection or whatever. Like, so that's, I didn't even sort of think of it in a call girl escort context. I just- Well, I guess like I part of me girl, did you know? because of the end, which will- do a warning about before that but yeah, I guess it's yeah. the very end of the film yeah but that to me seems as though she was more so forced to maybe maybe okay I'm gonna sort of throw this throw this idea out here and I'm kind of spitballing here um so from the way I see it at the start of the film she is not a prostitute call girl whatever she is a party girl who is a gold digger basically goes out and clings on to these rich dudes who are looking for a bit of young love and throughout the film we see her plans fall apart she is finally met with the consequences to all of her actions and she eventually then is forced to become what everyone sort of thought of her as in the first place Okay, uh, and I th- you know what I think that's that's actually really fair. I think that might actually be yeah, I, I agree with that. And, okay. and I agree with that as well. And along the way, to your point about Alva, and then to also to the point about the woman whose name is um, anyways the Countess. Oh yeah, that was interesting as well. Get uh, Geschwitz or something along those lines. Yeah, that's right. So she has these relationships that are where she's in total control of the, the dynamic of the relationship. And she kind of like, you know, uses them in a sense to get to what she needs. Right. Um, but like, the, I think a lot of these characters are kind of used just to show that side of her more than anything. Like, I don't know the relationship with Alba's confusing. If you think about it, of the fact of like, it's her good friend who's she's going after her dad, but 
or his dad. But it kind of makes sense, I think, all these, if, if you look at the characters more as a whole, she sort of is put into these bad situations, right, and responds to them and, and kind of fights and claws for survival in the way that she can. And the only weapon she has to use is this, like, seductive capability, right? Like, she's like a superhero of seduction, like a succubus almost or something, although that's kind yeah. of crazy. Um, but it then that's the tragedy of the movie, to your point, right? It ends up like kind of coming back to her in a way where she has to then rely on that completely, which is not ever her goal. Hmm. Yeah, like she she started off looking for rich men so that she would always live a life of luxury and ended up in squalor because of the fact that she was going for these rich men and eventually it just came back to bite her. And it's a nice tie-in that she ends up so desperate that she gets Jack the Ripper in bed. <laughs> okay, well, this is me and Zach. We're going to do a spoiler warning for this. <laughs> um, so spoiler I'm sorry. Alert. I'm sorry if Chris has ruined a film that's nearly a hundred years old. Um, <laughs> so I suppose we might as well talk to the ending while while we're here. So spoiler alert for the next few minutes. We're talking about the ending of the film. So after they they leave that that sort of casino boat thing that's something like out of Pinocchio. Um, they end up living in squalor in London in a tenement building that is completely dilapidated. And as, I, as sort of to my point that I made before, she is essentially forced to become a prostitute so that you know they can live, they can survive her Alva and, and Shy Glock, whatever the way you pronounce that dude's name. Um and yeah, Jack the Ripper, that 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 came out of so left field. <laughs> yeah. And that it's kind of interesting since at, at this point it had been 35, 40 years since the Jack the Ripper cases. So there's a technicality that in a weird way, almost like uh memories of murder, where there's this whole thing of like he talks about the reason he looks at the screen is because he knows the killer could watch the movie. In a weird way, that's true for this as well. There's a chance that Jack the Ripper was alive to see this movie. Yeah, that's, that's very have... true. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. It's weird, like, because when I think of Jack the Ripper, I just think of, like, a completely different era. And, like, knowing it's only, like, 30, 40 years before this came out, it's just weird to me. Like, when I think of Jack the Ripper, I think of, like, Edwardian England, you know, like, horse and carriages <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't really think of him as someone who could have ever watched film when really you know suppose technically maybe only like 10 15 years after the last killing you could have watched early films yeah and you know to ha have yourself you know someone you don't even know who they are that representing you in a film i mean it's it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to think about like how quickly they did something like this because i mean that would be like in the 90s someone choosing to have like the movie end with the zodiac killer killing you yeah and but is that is that so strange though to have that i don't think it is like in, in like i'm sure there's I don't think it's a bad of... thing it's just kind of like you know it's it, it's a it does feel out of left field because they're like oh we're gonna use like <laughs> something a real, real here that actually color. happened to like tie it in at the end yeah it, it was it was a strange choice it was a fun choice and i and i applaud pap's boldness for doing it but um, yeah, it was super in the left field that suddenly she gets murdered by Jack the Ripper. <laughs> like it's you, it's not like a few. If I had to take a bet before I started watching the movie as to how that film would end, 
that would be uh, a long, long shot of a bet to make. Uh, wouldn't, it would not have even entered my mind as a possibility. Well, even her getting murdered probably wouldn't have even been in my mind as a possibility, let alone by, by Jack the Ripper. Right. Yeah, she had an air of kind of invincibility for a lot of the film, right? Where she could always find yeah. a way out of the situation. Well, this is it. Like, especially, like, you know, as we said, sort of midway through the film when it looks as though she, she might meet her end suddenly. She sort of manages to worm her way out and ends up killing, uh, you know, the doctor, Alva's, Alva's dad. Um, so she, she does. And then, you know, on that sort of mad, crazy casino boat, she manages to elude sex slavery. Um, she manages to elude a few other things. So mm-hmm. she really does seem as though she can just always, always kind of worm her way out of a situation until until Jackie boy turns up with his uh, switchblade. Or well, he didn't need strangled her, didn't he? Or did he actually did he actually rip her? I thought there was a knife on the table. There right? was, yes. It was the knife threw him off. He threw away his knife and then he noticed the knife that was upstairs. That was it. Yeah. Really cool imagery. They, That's they, why you always do your dishes. <laughs> You know, you can't get murdered if the dishes are put away in their in their proper place. Right. There's a weird antithesis to this thing because we're talking about it being a character study and all. And it's like almost like an antithesis to what Taxi Driver is in a way. Like with uh, her, she's using her sexuality to get out of things. She's using her charm and stuff like that. While, you know, someone like Travis Bickle, who, you know, has been identified as and celibate uh involuntary and celibate stuff like that and um the idea that it, it's this weird mix of the violence and the you know where i'm trying to I, there there's just a lot to it the the uh especially with the end like the success at the end for travis bickle and her downfall on this and it almost feels like almost like polar opposite in the way they went about it which i'm sure it's not on purpose i just think it's an interesting kind of connection between them because of the way they're used. Somebody that had no sexuality to use to their advantage, basically, right? Right, and used the, the, the force of other ways to go through it. And while she had to, like, go as far into hers as maybe she never wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, just on that point, that, that's one thing I think is interesting. So uh, it, the idea of specifically talking about the way she uses her sexuality that's like the most intimate thing that we all have at least that's the way it's commonly talked about in whether it's you know spiritual discussions or in literature a lot of times like the idea that the control over our sexuality is like the thing that we have that's most dear right and and then in 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 contrast to that the violation of that is the most uh, egregious thing that can be done to us Right. The, the violation of our sexuality is the most egregious thing that can be done to us. Like that's the way those are commonly kind of discussed. Right. And I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. That's just like the kind of, you know, it's the common kind of way. That, so I think that this film, what, but I, I, I just can't get it out of my head. It, like it's what it, it stayed with me in a, in a really good way <clears throat> is the way that it deals with sexuality. And I think such a, I don't know if this is the right word, but like such a mature and like adult way, like it's a very nuanced look into sexuality that I was just surprised was made 90 years ago. Like, I don't know how else to say that. Like I, that is, it did not match my perception of the way people spoke openly about sexuality in 1929, especially in a movie that was put out in wide release. Yeah. Like it's, it's super complex in that regard as well. Like one one sort of moment that stuck with me that we alluded to earlier was the interaction with the, with the countess um 
obviously basically the countess is sort of subject to the same sort of charms that that the men are you know with, with lulu she can sort of wrap her around her finger as well she even explicitly says something like you know something like oh the the countess has a thing for me so even lulu herself knows that, that mm-hmm. she can charm women just as much as she can charm the men and it's interesting uh, again on this on this crazy casino boat that i just think is wild and funny um when when she meets with the countess and you know they're discussing their plan they have this really tender moment where they're sort of embraced in one another and i don't know if this was done on purpose or what the sort of sort of uh, context maybe could be behind this but Lulu and the Countess have a much more tender moment than Lulu has with any other person in the whole film yeah you know so I, like you're saying it's a very it's a very mature picture especially for his age it's very frank in its depiction in its depiction of uh, of sexuality but there's a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity behind that it's it's an it's an incredibly put together film I, I often say this, you know, a film uh, is, is really well put together and I normally ta- I'm normally talking about it from a technical point of view with, you know, the direction or the cinematography or whatever. But here, are just more so thematically, it's, it's very well put together thematically. It's like Pops knew exactly what he wanted to articulate with this film and, and, he, and he did so perfectly. All right, and... Strong female leads in film week continues with 1970 film from Jacques Demy, uh, Demy which is Donkey Skin, and French it's Podin. And this is a very old fairy tale written by Charles Perrault, that same guy that wrote Sleeping Beauty and a handful of the other fairy tales, Cinderella, a handful of the other fairy tales we know very well. Um, probably did drugs to write this one, but it's the story of uh, a, wo- a young woman, daughter of a king, who is uh, through a series of circumstances is courted by her dad, decides she doesn't want that relationship or, and runs away uh, wearing the skin of a donkey and ends up as a scullery maid and uh, has an opportunity to come back and and meet a prince if she can figure out a fairy tale ending to her story. Uh, so I'll stop right there. Um, what did you all think about this? Uh, Adam, I think you're the only one who has not gone first yet. Um, it's probably my third favorite Shrek movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, look, uh, I not I don't want to be be overly negative because I I did like the film I got I gave it a four star, um looks looks gorgeous colors are great set design costume design fantastic. It just didn't do enough for me and I don't know if if it's because Demi maybe sort of stuck to the fairy tales story too much. It just everything was just too simple, um. You kind of feel like he's trying to maybe, well, not maybe radicalize, but maybe invert some of the tropes of, of fairy tales throughout the film with kind of like anachronistic songs. And, you know, this, this sort of music is kind of more modern. And then you have, um, oh, what's the fairy godmother actress? What's her name again? Seaberg or Seabring or something like that. Yeah, I'll find it in just a second. She's um, great. But yeah, like, you know, she's she's sort of like, she's sort of like the cool sort of Delphine. modern. 
Delphine Seerig, is it? Yep. Yeah. Like she's almost like a cool sort of modern woman sort of stuck in this sort of fairy tale world almost. Um, so you feel like he's trying to maybe invert some tropes, but it just kind of ends like a normal fairy tale. And it just, at the end, I kind of just went, oh, that's it. So, you know, I liked a lot of aspects of it. I just wish, I don't know, I just wish it did a bit more. There's one element I will say I did not expect at the end, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> I know what you're talking about already, yeah. <laughs> uh, this actually um, wasn't really my first experience to the story Donkey Skin. It's not a very popular fairy tale. This isn't, you know, Cinderella or anything like that. You know, it's not as well known. But I was actually really looking forward to watching this because it's a major plot point in a Telltale game I played years ago, uh, The Wolf Among Us, which is based on Fables comics about like uh, fairy tale creatures from the real world. But that's not important. So I was actually pretty excited to watch this. And I, I liked it. Um, I won't say I loved it. Uh, it, was, it was enjoyable to watch at least once. Um, I feel like and I'm, you know, I, I'm going to probably say a lot of stuff Adam did, but I think the movie looks great. I, I love the, like, the weirdness to it. Like, you know, all the horses on one kingdom are all blue. On the other one, it's all red. It reminded me a lot of uh, Beast, uh, Beastmaster, where they paint the tiger black <laughs> to make it look like a panther. But, um, you know, it's, it's elements like that. You know, it, it was fine. And, you know, there was some, you know, humor to it, which you'd, a little dark humor to it, which you'd expect from a fairy tale. And, I don't know. I just felt like maybe John Borman should have directed this and I probably would have liked it more, but um, I, you know, it was, uh, it was fun. So they shoot pictures has it as 1,610. Okay. Um, which based off of both of y'all's reaction, I'm going to say you think is probably high. You know, like anything outside the top 1,000, I just don't even care where it places unless <laughs> it's like something I really like. Like outside of the top a thousand, it's, I'm not too fussy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and say, yeah, I can name 1600 movies that I would put in front of this because yeah, I don't know for if that's sure. true or not. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it is. I'm not Definitely sure. not. Um, it, you know, I this, this part of uh, so Jack Demi in general loved musicals, right? And he he was that was a big part of his career was sort of playing with the expectations of a musical while making a straight musical. Like a lot of his stories are kind of dark in the subject matter, even when the music is bright. Um, and I, I think that when I, hearing the, there was a, there's a special feature where he was kind of talking about how, how he just basically grew up with this story, right? And so even as a seven and eight year old, he was doing puppet shows for his family and he would do puppet shows with this story, which kind of shows how messed up the French are because this story is like <laughs> weird for kids. Um, but it, this is just essentially like his love story to his childhood, right? And he made it, uh, he said he made it from the mindset of how he saw the story as a seven-year-old. So like as a seven-year-old, it wasn't weird that the dad wanted to marry the daughter. That was just like a fact in the story, right? He didn't have the same like adult kind of sensibilities of understanding those dynamics, right? He just like, oh, okay, it's just like a story. Like in this story, the dad wants to marry the daughter because she's the most beautiful in the land. Like. That's a logical reason why the dad would want that, right? It was the request from the, the, the dying queen. And then he looked around everywhere. He couldn't find one. And he saw her in the garden and it just happened to be his daughter, right? Weird to say out loud. Let me say that. But like in the mind of a seven-year-old, I can at least wrap 
I understand what he was trying to say, I guess. Yeah, because I guess you're not thinking of it in a sexual nature, like we're naturally going to, like, oh, that's gross. Like, yeah, right? Like he was. Oh, he just like, really, really, really likes his daughter, you know? Yeah, not thinking FBI about it on their way. That. <laughs> exactly. And, and he said that as a, and I don't know if this is true, I don't have daughters uh, uh, or was not a daughter ever, but. Um, apparently a lot of little girls, the first question you ask them, who do you want to marry? Like they always say their daddy. Apparently that's a common thing to say as like a young, like four or five year old like girl. They don't have the full concept of what that is. Freud it's like was very, right the whole time. You, you what? Freud was right the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I think he was kind of just like leaning really heavily into like the innocence of the, the way that this story was like written, like for the audience it was written, right? Like it was written for kids. They don't have the same concepts of how creepy and weird that is. Um, uh, still don't understand why an adult would write this story, but that's a separate discussion. Um, I think he he had this interaction with like the story as just a fun, you know, interesting tale of a woman that instead of the the Cinderella shoe, in this case, it's the ring, right? That has to fit the finger. And like the prince that has to go and like find the right ring to fit the right finger. And like there is a lot of that magic and kind of fairy tale to it. Um, underneath the donkey skin, she's wearing these like beautiful robes, right? Almost like like Superman or Spider-Man when they take off their clothes, they're like wearing in their spider suit. Um, so like I think those aspects like captured his imagination and he just wanted to bring to get bring forward his vision of how he saw it as an eight-year-old. Um, I don't know if that makes it better or not, but I just thought that was an interesting take, I guess. Well, no, I, I, I definitely agree with you in a lot of sense, because one of the things I think one of the first things I thought when the movie finished was I wish more fairy tale movies looked like this, because it does have like this sense of wonder and uh, like that, like it, uh, Willy Wonka, that, that it, not just because of the Smurf looking people that are in the movie, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but in a sense, that's kind of the, the tone it has. It has this really Willy Wonka feel to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I don't know. I, th there's not a, a broader point there other than just to say, to bring in like Demi's attempt or, or, or his, his perspective of, you know, why he made the film this way and why he kind of chose this story. Um, kind yeah, cause of- Because going back to like the colored horses and stuff, you know, that's kind of something like when you're, you know, the crude drawings of like old fairy tale books, you know, it's like, how do you, oh. how do you distinguish that, the, which kingdom's which? You did, the whole horse is just that color. Not, not just like the armor or the clothing, it's the whole horse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, is it like it's messed up that she's walking around in the donkey skin though like that's that's another point that's super messed up <laughs> and they don't even like they don't even hide like the underside of the skin oh you know, i know like, i noticed that too <laughs> it, it looks so gnarly on the side that she like the side that she, that's touching her looks awful <laughs> like yeah. it's not it's not like you know it's like a like it's not like they made like a donkey skin coat and you know there's nice lining on the inside. It's like now just the underside of the donkey skin. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's yeah. gross. Poor Balthazar. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> um, have you even have seen much of Demi's work? This was my. Uh, first. Yeah, I saw Umbrellas of Sherberg, which I liked more than this. 
Um, but again, I feel like I'm being super negative on this film. It's not a bad film in any way, shape, or form. It's it's actually it's a it's a good film. Um, and you know what you guys are saying about sort of the imagery capturing like the childlike wonder. It has that childlike wonder atmosphere. You know, it's you know it looks like something that came straight from the mind of like a seven eight year old. Visually speaking, this is how you would imagine, you know, a fairy kingdom. Um, obviously, like we know now, you know, as adults, when you visualize maybe medieval times and stuff where fairy tales normally take place, shit's a lot more grimier, gray, <laughs> a lot more sort of desolate. No. Whereas when you're a child you think of it as colorful with all the sort of nice banners and the purple walls and mm-hmm. everyone wearing these nice colorful clothing, which probably is not very feasible in a, in a, in a medieval setting. Um, so like, yeah, visually, like it really does capture that, that childlike wonder. Um, but saying that though, I don't think it's an excuse to not do more with your story. You know, I get what you're saying that, Oh, he made this film with the vision of, you know him as a you know as a child reading these stories but he wasn't a child making the film he, you know he, he he could have tried harder with the story because for all the work he did with creating this majestic sort of scenery and the other little bits of nuance he put in like i said before with the music and you know i, I forgot her freaking name again but the fairy godmother um just to sort of end it so blandly, you know, oh, the ring fits. We're going to get married. I'm saved by the man. You spoiler know. alert. No, spoiler kidding. alert. <laughs> spoiler alert for every fairy tale ever. The prince <laughs> saves the princess. Wow. You know, it's just, it's been done. It's been done to death a million and one times before. You know, I feel like, I feel like with the other nuances he set up throughout the film, he, he could have maybe subverted that expectation and nobody would have been mad if he had, if he had, if he had changed it up a bit, but no, it's just another film where the helpless princess is saved by the, the weird prince who is not very princely. Um, he's just this random dude, you know, so yeah, like the ending, the ending let me down and it kind of tainted my view of everything else because I feel like he had set up, he had set it up so well and it just kind of fell at the last hurdle uh, for this, just all for, for her, for Catherine Deneuve to be saved by some Lord Farquaad <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of globalization where we did a little bit early in the first segment, the, you know, this was, this movie was made for French audiences, right? And it was only the second film at this point. It was made in 1970. And the only other fairy tale that had been put in French cinemas um, was Beauty and the Beast, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. So it actually had, at least from a, a, a cinema sort of perspective, it actually had not been told a thousand times yet. This was actually kind of a, a, a treat in a sense for something that they could like families could kind of take their kids to. Right. And like, um, uh, or an opportunity to go see like a fairy tale on, on screen. Um, I think that would help if you had the nostalgia for it. Like I can understand if I met like some random French person that love that movie. Everything I imagine with a fairy tale, I'm like, that makes sense. It really does. Yeah. Not, not saying that to necessarily refute your point, Adam, but maybe just to provide context of like 
Yeah, see, I think my problem maybe is that I'm I'm looking at it from the perspective of me watching the work of a respected filmmaker from an era that's known for its sort of radicalization and subversion. Yeah. So that's probably what my problem is. Like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like when I when I look at a like obviously like I said I, I saw Umbrellas of Sherberg first, which is a musical in a sense that literally every line of dialogue is sang. Everyone sings all of their dialogue throughout the entire film, mm-hmm. but there's not, there's no show tunes or anything like that. Nobody sort of ends up on a stage with loads of sort of background dancers and, and, and stuff like that. It's literally two people talking, but they're singing at each other basically for mm-hmm. the whole way through the film. So I'm already used to Demi being creative with how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So when I see this then, which kind of seems basic in comparison and then sort of comparing it then even further with sort of French new wave, even though Demi probably wasn't even really part of the French new wave. And, um, but, you know, comparing it to like, you know, a Godard or a Truffaut or even like his wife Varda, you know, it, it comes off very basic in comparison. And maybe that's my fault. I, I'm, I'm not appreciating it for what it is, which is, uh, you know, a an, an an adaption of a of a fairy tale, and um, so maybe I expected maybe I, I expected something too different or expected too much from what is essentially just just a really sort of nice looking fairy tale. What it when did Zazie come out? Oh, Zazie came out in 1960. So you know, Louis Malle did something similar with Zazie dans la Mecha, or at least where he. Not that it was a fairy tale, but it wasn't. I mean, that is an animated film that is done, shot in in, in uh, with not like without using animation. Yeah, right? it's a live a live action, but it might as well be animation because it's just so balls to the wall and zany, yeah. right? So maybe it was more of like that type because Louis Malle was also kind of an outsider in the French New Wave a little bit, even though he was yeah. working in that same era, right? Yeah. Um, and, and those, Louis Malle it was also kind of big on like every film he made or, or a lot of the films he made were just very different from each other. Uh, and, and maybe they were more, uh, and this is 10 years later, so it's not a perfect uh, comparison, but you know, maybe it was more of that style of thing, right? Um, and then you even had Romare directed um, Percival, Percival the Gallant. Um, have, you all, have you all seen that? I haven't. I know it exists because you wrote a review on it, but I haven't seen it. I'm yeah, not a big Romer guy. It's a it's a um, knight's tale, right? He was one of the knights of the round table, but it was shot on a soundstage. And what they did was they created elaborate um, set pieces. So like the, the trees are very kind of like bubbly and animated looking and, and the castles are very borderline kind of animated looking, but you can tell they're set pieces and they just kind of go back and forth on the soundstage. So it's, there, there's, there's a, a small kind of niche, it seems like, during the French New Wave time of directors taking these children's stories and sort of telling it in, in their own way. And maybe it fits more into that. Cool. I think that might be a decent place to wrap it if anyone else has anything to bring up. Unless we want to bring up the helicopter. Ah, oh, shit. We never talk about the helicopter. <laughs> if we don't talk about it, maybe it doesn't exist. There's a helicopter in the movie. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> For some reason, unbeknownst to anyone, there's a helicopter. This is why I think, what's the name of that actress again? For the, Delphine? Delphine Seerig. I think that she she's a modern person who got sort of magicked into having to be in this film. 
That's my that's my fan theory for Donkey Skin. Wow, there's she's from she's from the real world. That's why she that's why she's in a helicopter at the end. I like that. I like that. She's sultry as hell too. Yeah. I mean, if they if he really wanted to like jar me at the end, I honestly thought I'd like hit a button on my controller for like half a second. I was like, <laughs> did I? <laughs> okay, so now we come to our last section, which as always is any other business. Just a time at the end for us to bring up something that we've seen or want to talk about recently that uh, we just want to give a shout out to. Um, so I'm just going to hop in with mine quickly first, if that's okay. Um, so obviously, as listeners probably know, uh, we brought out a list of top 100 greatest films a few weeks ago. I've gotten some really interesting and fun reactions to it. A lot of sort of drive onto the website, which is always great to see. Um when we sort of when I compiled the list, I noticed I had only seen about 70, I want to say about 77, 78 of the films out of 100. So I'm just sort of making it my business to try and get through the ones I haven't seen just, you know, because it'd be, it'd be nice to be 100% complete on on our own list. Um, yeah, so I was off for a few days uh, last week. So I said, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity to watch the long films that I never normally get a chance to watch on a work day because my girlfriend was working but I was off so I literally just had you know it was my choice whatever was on I got to choose everything so I said no better opportunity than to sit through a four-hour coming-of-age epic um which is a brighter (laughs) summer day from uh, Edward Yang um so I went in with like pretty high expectations because obviously it was very high on our list and I've seen it very high on a lot of other lists as well Obviously, four-hour runtime is pretty taunting for anyone. But honestly, this film completely blew me away. It was five out of five rating for me on this. It's four hours long, but it really doesn't feel it just because of how well-made the film is, how well-told the story is. It never drags. Nothing ever feels out of place. Um, just a really well, well-put-together film, Um really well acted by a very young inexperienced cast looks really great nice sumptuous colors um yeah it just it completely engrossed me which is something that i wasn't expecting from a four-hour film as you guys know i have my three-digit runtime rule where any <laughs> film over three digits is too long um, but uh, this this broke the rule um, this this was a, a really really fantastic film and if you have four hours spare I, I highly recommend watching it I'll have to get around to it at some point I've never seen it yeah no it's it's honestly it's great I'm gonna watch I'm gonna try and watch Yee as well next time I have a day that's, that's kind of pretty long but not as long I think it's just under three hours so uh, that's not as long. Uh, I didn't get to it last week, but I'm going to try and get to it again. I'm off next Friday because my birthday next Saturday. So I booked the Friday off. So I have a nice long weekend. Nice. So I might try and watch that next Friday when I'm off. Is that um, uh, happy birthday? Because we're not going to talk to you then. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Is, is that the first film you've seen from Edward Young? No, I saw Taipei Story at okay. uh, start of the year. And I didn't love it. It was just a bit too abstract. It was it was just kind of like Wong Kar Wai, but way more abstract and mm-hmm. characters I didn't really care as much about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, brighter brighter summer day was uh, like not to make a pun, but it was like a night and day between Taipei Story and uh, actually, am I mixing this? Edward Yang did make Taipei Story, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay, cool. For a, a set, for a split second, I thought, oh shit, am I mixing up with that other guy, the Hao Xiao Xian, the other Taiwanese filmmaker? I thought I was mixing him up for a second, but um, yeah. Just I'm gonna be dying it, but no, I'm almost sure. I always... No, no, yeah, it is. I just, uh, I just checked it. it. It is Yang. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Zach, what about you, Zach? Um, I guess I had a couple I was going to go with, but I think I'm going to go with, uh, for the first time, I finally got around to watching um, Excalibur, which I think ties in well to us watching uh, Donkey Skin, and you mentioned Percival. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, this was a movie made by John Borman um, back in the early 80s. Um, and it's such an interesting film to watch because like, from a story structure point, it's a, it's a little, I'm trying to think of the word, meandering. Like it's it's mixing like four or five different uh, King Arthur legend stories into one. You get the how the sword got into the stone, Arthur pulling the stone, the search for the Holy Grail, and a few other ones that are just kind of thrown in there. And um, it, it, it it's amazing how beautiful the film looks because it has such like interesting cinematography. It's almost why like when we were was talking about Donkey Skin, I mentioned you know it'd probably be really cool to watch, see John Borman do it because it has that similar idea to it that you're doing so much with the way the film looks, which is really interesting that it turned out the way it did since the original cinematographer quit very early on because he lost a bunch of footage and just the camera guy had to come in and do the cinematography, be the director of photography for the whole film and mm-hmm. did such, such an excellent job. It, 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 there is so much like iconic looks to the film. There's so much work done to have like almost like this muted looking area but then you have like like when Excalibur's around you have like the they use glow in the dark to give like this green look to it and it just it looks great the acting from everyone Merlin um I can't remember the actor plays Merlin but he was great in it um it's just a fun film it's definitely flawed it definitely has like some story structure issues but it's it's far you know seeing Green Knight a few weeks ago really made me want to sit down and watch some of the older um, King Arthur movies and I just really appreciated the way he went about it to try to mix in like so much to tell like one cohesive story um, and just kind of do it in a really fun and adventure uh, action adventure sort of way Who does it have like a definitive kind of blu-ray release uh, yes it does have a blu-ray release um, I don't think it actually had many cut problems uh, that I can remember um i think it's from my understanding it, it came out as it intended it it was kind of mixed with critics and it uh and it didn't do well in the box office but it kind of got a cult following like years later once uh once it got, just came out again i think from my understanding that's cool yeah it just it feels like one of those things that like a vinegar syndrome or or one of those companies would do like a big kind of special edition of It'd be nice if it had a nicer special edition because I mean it's pretty bare bones, but it works. Let's go. Um, okay, well, quickly, I'll. Um, there's so much to talk about. I've, it's been a fun kind of couple of weeks. I've, I've fell into a nice rhythm of watching movies, but just just two that I'll kind of highlight quickly. So, uh, Arrow uh, put out this set called Black Society tri- trilogy. Uh, it's Takashi Miike films. And there's, there's three movies in it that are all kind of tied thematically, they're based in Taiwan. Um, but it's obviously he's a Japanese director and, and it's like this sort of culture clash between people that are half Japanese and half Taiwanese or maybe Japanese but living in Taiwan or it, th- that's the kind of theme that links the three movies 
Um, police and, and criminals play a role in this as well, it, it, but the films are quite different. But once you get beyond that, um, the first one is Shinjuko Triad Society, which if anybody knows anything about Takashi Miike, he never shies away from showing violence or gore. And that's probably more in line with what people would expect from him. Like it's very, like when, when there is the, 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 the family that kind of does this criminal family, they're involved in organ trafficking. Uh, and, and so adults and children both. And it's this kind of, some of the scenes, luckily none of the scenes are horrific with children, but some of the scenes with the, the organ donors and, and the humans at least, or the adults at least is pretty graphic and pretty brutal, very, very miyake. Um, but the kind of, that's contrasted with this sweet sort of story about this guy who's trying to save his brother from falling into this crime family. Um, and then in the second one in the series, Rainy Dog, it's another one that it ties into like different definitions of family. So there's this guy who's an assassin and one of his old love, uh, I don't know if it's a fling or just a girlfriend. He didn't know that she got pregnant and uh, she, she brings his son over to him as like an eight or nine year old boy who doesn't speak. And she drops him in and says, here, it's your problem now. And like leaves in a taxi. And uh, this assassin is sort of like conflicted on that because this boy now gets in the way of him doing his job well. And, uh, and he meets a, uh, a prostitute, uh, not in the way that uh, Pandora's box is portrayed, but an actual prostitute. And, um, and they form this kind of, it's, it's oddly sweet. Uh, they form this kind of love, a family uh, from, from very broken backgrounds and very broken people form this family that kind of works. Um, and so anyways, and I'm getting the ley lines here in the next day or two, but I just am so impressed with Takashi Miike like as a filmmaker. I think he, a lot of times people think about audition or they think about Ichi the Killer and how gruesome it is. And that's what people talk about. And that's certainly there, but he's got such a cool, like innate ability to tell a story underneath all of the, all of the violence. And I, I think that's really on display here. Um, uh, and then the only other thing I'll talk about just quickly is I started my Jodorowsky run. Um, and I made the decision to, I knew I wasn't going to like the movies if I just watched them. I just, I don't like watching modern art. Um, anyways, for, yeah, I'm just, that's just, I'm not there yet. <laughs> so I watched all the movies with the commentary and that's totally changed my experience. It's like, I, I was kind of telling you all a minute ago, but it's sort of this idea of like walking through a museum with the audio headset on explaining like what's going on. And, you know, like you can argue with Jodorowsky's take on things. Like he certainly has a higher opinion of himself than anybody would ever have of him. <laughs> um, uh, but even in that ego, you, he still does explain like his intent here and like what he's trying to do and like why this image was brought in. And, uh, you know, in El Topo specifically, which is kind of where I'm at at this point, he, he talks through his own journey of going through different spiritual practices and learning from them and how that was like brought into the film and, his desire to make, to, to use film in the same way so people can engage with his movies in the same way that people engage with like the Bible or the Quran or like these spiritual texts. He was trying to do that same thing with film. Um, you know, again, I don't agree with the execution of that. Like, I don't think he did that. Uh, but it was interesting hearing his own mind and just how he thought about the movies. And I'm grateful that he's alive still to be able to talk about it. Um, I'm a little bit nervous going into Holy Mountain. I think that's supposed to be his most kind of um, uncomfortable film to watch, like with animal cruelty, as well as the way that some of the nudity is kind of portrayed. Like, 
in a sense of a little bit more violent, I guess. Um, I, but, it's my second favorite. That's not Santa Sagre. That, okay. that one, yeah, that, that, I, I like Holy Mountain. I, I like it better than El Topo personally. Okay, cool. Well, that's that's good to hear. Um, yeah, the animal violence in his movies is hard to see sometimes. He doesn't shy away from it. Um, I think he, well, anyways, yeah, that he, he doesn't, he uses it for art, but but it's hard to watch sometimes, or it's, it's hard to watch in general. But yeah, so th- those are, you know, there's a lot of different things I'm going through. Next time we talk, uh, is that true? Anyways, in, in October, I'm going to start my, the Jason run. I've seen all those movies before, but I'm finally going to get to the Screen Factory box set, so I'm excited for that. But yeah. That's that's my any other business. Oh, 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 and I just got this Sinbad. So I, I'm I'm uh, Sinbad box set that Indicator put out. It's the first or it's three Sinbad movies from Harryhausen. Uh, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and The Golden Voyage of Sinbad and The Golden Shower of Sinbad. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Those are the three movies that I'm going to be watching. And um, I saw that one when I was a uh, I used to have a VHS of it. The, awesome. the eye of the tiger um, i'll never forget the the image of the skeletons are just sort of fried in my my brain from being scared of them as like a i i'd say i must have been like four five maybe at most yeah uh, the vhs from the eye of the tiger and yeah the skeletons used to freak me out that's awesome i can't i think i'm gonna i'm gonna watch one to make sure it's okay but i'm definitely gonna try to show these to my four-year-old as well so we'll see yeah, you don't want to scar them like I was scared, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.